0: Please open your Bibles to 1 John as we continue our look at John's letter. We'll be at uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and we'll go on through verse 27 this morning. You know, we've come to this place in in, uh, in John's letter where he's, he has the heart and the desire to encourage us that you may believe, and that's his foundational purpose. Uh, really his his purpose in writing this letter that you would know that you have believed and he says this in chapter 5 verse uh, 13. He says these words these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God We see this as the heartbeat of John's letter and his desire is that you would know right that you have this, this truth that it lies within you. And he's been giving us up to this point. Uh, he's ex- been explaining sin and what sin is and, and what we should do about it. And those who say we don't have it and so on and so forth, as he deals with the Gnostics that have been uh, floating within the, the community of believers and then since moving out. And he'll touch on that this morning in the passage we're about to read. But he's been giving us some tests and right? so he kind of gives this test of righteousness, where he says in in chapter uh, uh, chapter two, in verses three through six, where he says, you know, in verse four, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. so, you we have this this picture, right, of those within the community. And John's challenge for us is to say, look, if you love Christ, if you love him, well, there's going to be some application. There's going to be some growth in your sanctification. You're going to pursue. You're going to learn what those commandments are, and you're going to desire to see those in application in your life. And when we come to these moments where maybe we fail, we're going to repent, and we're going to continue to grow. And he says, this is is a test. This is an indicator. And he kind of goes on from there in verses 7 on through 11. He talks about the gift of love, and he's talking about those who say they love their brother, right, or excuse me, hate their brother. Um, He's saying the love of God is not in them. And he says, this is an indicator. Do you have a genuine love for the church? Do you have a genuine love for your brother and sister and the family of God? And then he kind of takes a break, right? This is a few weeks back. He he kind of goes in this idea of of, of you developing. He talks about um, getting in verse 12, the little children, and how he kind of frames this element of young men. And then he goes on to men and your maturity. He says, "This this is who you are. And he speaks to our spiritual condition. Right, new believers to mature believers. He's saying it's important that you grow and you mature because you live in this world that is evil. Right. He goes on to say in verses 15 through 20 or through 17, excuse me, where he says, in, in specifically in verse 16, uh, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is where you exist. Right. This is where you live, whether it's on a campus or whether it's in a workplace or maybe it's a home environment. We do have the world preaching these things, right? If it feels good, it's got to be right. Come on, let's do it. And it's okay, even you know, if you do, if you go and, and people will say this, if, if you steal, that's all right, that's, that's fine, just don't ever steal from me, right? There's always that line. But the world says this is, this is what it is, and yet the believer, Jonathan, these believers are in the context of this, and John says this world is going to pass away, right? And, and so he kind of has these two tests, and he kind of comes to this break, you will. And he has this idea that, that, that maybe John feels like he's been shaking us a little too hard, right? Like, hey, come on, you've you got to know this. And then he kind of says these words of encouragement. And then it leads into the passage we'll talk about this morning, which is his third test, the test of truth. And truth of itself is, is quite interesting if you think about that. I don't know when I, when I hear like, you know, the idea of truth, I always think of Pilate asking that question of Jesus when he's in on trial. And he says, well, what is truth? And you think that's a question that people contemplate and mull over and think about today, especially in the, on a college life or an academic level. There's always those thoughts of what is truth? Do we have truth? And what's interesting is this message that John is going to, to, to share with us this morning is, is the idea that, that he doesn't expound that this is God's truth is in fact truth. He doesn't operate from that paradigm. He assumes that what you have received, meaning the gospel, is true. And he says, this is enough, right? This is enough for which you to, to exist in this world that is passing away. It's enough for you to understand the difference between error and right and, and knowing these things and how you can grow. And he, he kind of operates from this understanding. He says, this is truth. You know, it's an amazing because you, you live in a world and maybe you're thinking of it now. You come across some people who just have some different ideas of what truth is. It reminds me of the story of, of President Lincoln who was having a debate with this young man and, and the guy was just kind of arguing for, for argument's sake and finally President Lincoln, it goes that he said, he asked the, the young man, he says, well, uh, let's find something we can agree on. If I was to say, how many, if we were to look at a cow and, and you were to look at a cow and I said, how many legs does a cow have? You know, what would be your answer? And the man said, well, of course, there's four legs in a cow. And he says, well, very good. Now, what if we were to say that we, we said the tail was a leg how many legs would a, would, a, would the cow have then? And of course, the man said, well, the, the legs, you know, if it's, if it's a, the tail's a leg, well, it's, there's five. And he says, well, that's where you're wrong. Right? Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And it's that idea of truth, right? Calling something true, when we know it's not true, doesn't make it true, whether you feel good about it or not. And yet, we live in a society that has these bound. It has all these elements of saying, "This is true," "This is right." Do these things, and yet John comes on this on the scene here, and his assurance to these believers is the truth of the gospel. This is truth, and it becomes the test of truth. We pick this up. This is chapter two, verse eighteen, and I'll read through twenty-seven. He says, "Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that many antichrists is coming." The Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is in the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you you will abide in him let me offer a brief prayer father we do thank you for this time and we pray that Lord, as we open your word and as we walk through this passage i ask that your spirit would give us the ability to, to understand and to hear And not just to know these things, but to apply them to our lives, that we would continually be growing and changing. I do ask, God, that you allow me to get out of the way, that every thought and eye would be fixed squarely upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come to this idea of test of truth, and John has kind of walked us through quite a bit of information. He's dealing with these Gnostics who've come in, they're trying to create some confusion And they get to this point where everything's kind of riled up, and John says, you know what? They laughed. Guys, they went out from us because they weren't of us. And you can imagine that there's some confusion there, right? I mean, some of these are thinking, well, they're claiming this Christ. They're claiming a better way. They've got this higher understanding, this esoteric understanding. Maybe they're the right ones. Maybe they do have it. And John comes on the scene and says, guess what? I know the word Gnostic means knowing ones, but you are, in fact, the ones who have the truth. You know it, and this is his way of combating this uh, false uh, teaching. The teacher's coming in and saying all these things about Jesus because John, quite frankly, goes through who Christ is and he explains to us who they, in fact, they are denying. And there's some wonderful ele- el- excuse me elements about truth, right? <clears throat> what truth is and how it functions. And the first thing right out of the gate we learn about truth is that truth brings division. That sounds harsh, but this is exactly what John is saying. If you look at verses 18 through 21. He says, little children, right? His term of endearment. And he kind of goes on and said, this is the last hour, which makes sense because the verse previous, he says, this world with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, this world is passing away. And so he says, little children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So clearly John has communicated these things. These are some of the things that he has talked to them about. And he says, look, it's the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour in which we exist. They went out from us, he says in verse 19, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But, right, it's our contrast. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you have, or excuse me, you do not know the truth, but because you know it, that no lie is of the truth. So John comes on this moment. He says, look, I get it. the world is passing away. This is the context in which you live and you exist. It's going to go away. And he, said, he talks about abiding in, in verse uh, 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And he comes on the scene saying, look, this is the truth. You have an anointing of the Holy One. But he uses really two groups here. He goes right into this idea that there is truth. And he doesn't argue or or create any type of argument for the sake of saying God's truth is truth. He's operating from that position saying this is truth. This is the truth I've communicated to you. There is no lie in this truth. However, we do learn that it creates division. Quite frankly, he has two groups, and the first one are those opposed to the truth, and he frankly calls them, these are, right, against Christ. They are the anti-Christs, and they've already come. And this is John's reasoning that we are in this time, and he's not focusing so much on the end of history. He's not saying this isn't physically the last hour, but he's saying, look, we are in, as this thing unfolds, this is it. We're coming to this place where this is the written scriptures. You're going to have the scriptures, and you're going to have uh, uh, opposition. To the truth continues to this day. We see opposition in our world. We deal with opposition maybe in the workplace or in the family. We have those who claim something different. And quite frankly, uh, John is saying there are two groups, right? And he calls them the Antichrist. He's not uh, specifically speaking of um, the idea of Antichrist, right? He's leaning to the idea of the spirit of the Antichrist. And it's interesting, John is the only one I believe uses this term Antichrist right? He's kind of coined it. He holds on to it. He uses it multiple times, but the but the idea of this individual or the spirit of this individual is not new to Scripture. Daniel starts in Daniel 7. He hits on these things, and we see it definitely uh, come to culmination in, in Revelation, right? We see this idea. We know that this is out there. We know we have uh, uh, an enemy, right? We know there are principalities and powers. We know that those are, are struggling against us, and John is saying, look, they are there, and he actually gives them the name that those who are in opposition to you they are in a completely different group than you are this truth has made division we look at this and we see that there is or they have created a substitute for christ and it's probably most likely as close to jesus as possible that sounds really good but it's not quite jesus you can imagine some of these believers being in this church going, man, they, they went out and they, they, they say all the right things and they look right and they kind of talk right. And I watch the way they walk. They even walk right. That looks like they've got the real deal, right? And they went out from us. And John says, you know what? This was made manifest. They went out from you to demonstrate. God is showing you that they were never a part of you. There is a different group here. And John doesn't mince words. I mean, let's be honest, right? He just comes out and says, hey, they are, liars right that's pretty rough and we know this to be true there's other examples of scripture mark chapter 13 where jesus says for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect but take heed see i have told you all things beforehand paul picks up on the same idea in second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 speaking of the man of sin he says he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called god or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We realize that this is not a new thing. John isn't picking up on something new. John is just putting him in this camp where he's saying, these have the spirit of the Antichrist. They are, in fact, against Christ. They stand opposed to Christ. And it's interesting, as we come to this verse, in in verse 19, where John says, I think, some, some pretty amazing things where he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Here we see this wonderful element of the doctrine, right? The perseverance of the saints. What John is saying, that they were never part of you. They were never part of the church. Of course, they went out from the church. This was made manifested that, one, you would be encouraged. That you are here, that you are pressing on, that you're growing in your faith. This is a confidence for you. Right? That you are part of the church. God is doing a work amongst you. This is the truth in which I communicated to you. This is what you've believed. And so we have this wonderful doctrine. We talk about the perseverance, those who trust, those who know Christ, those who are convinced. This is Jesus of the scriptures. And, and John unfolds more specifically who he's talking about. But if for you and I this morning, we say this is him, and we have this wonderful assurance that arises right out of this verse, we also see manifested the idea of the visible church this is the church becoming into existence. And and he is saying, look, God will have his church. They will be here. They will confess. They will trust in who he is. And it's amazing to me that out of opposition, right, out of John saying, look, hey, they left. They were never part of you. Out of this, we see something wonderful that encourages us. And in one sense, we should say, yes, I'm part of the church. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm pressing in. I'm going forward. But yes, on the other side, it should also break our hearts. There are those who are lost. There are those who oppose Christ. There are those who oppose Christ who don't even know they are opposing Christ. And that becomes very clear to us when we see that verse. So John says there's one side. Truth, truth is ultimately divides. right? Whether it's Hebrews 12, we talk about the verse in Scripture, departing or, or, or coming exactly and dividing in bone and marrow. Or we see that playing out, but it, ultimately there's no gray area with God. You're either in one, either four, right? you're either for, right? You're the pro-Christ or you're anti, you're against. So he says that. And then the other side of it, he, of course, he talks about dear children. He says these are those who belong to the truth, God's children. <clears throat> it's amazing because he says two things that kind of stand out that are also by way of encouragement to those who belong to the truth, those who are, who are God's children, over against those who are against, but he says God is with you, God is with us. Right? The wonderful encouragement to those who belong to the truth is that God is with you. We are anointed by the Holy One. Anointed by the Holy One. It's interesting, this word, because we see this word for Christ, the Messiah, which means anointed one. We have this idea in the phrase of anointing, the word charisma in the Greek. We see that played out which is also related to Christ. And I believe John's point here is he's saying that all believers, right? If you've come to profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been sealed, right? By the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, you are sealed in the day of redemption. You become the hands and feet. God is with you. We can trust him to be with us. This is the confidence we had. we become his representative. Jesus said in John chapter twenty. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Right? Christ with us. First John 4 17, where John later will pick up this idea. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we have, or me, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So John says, look, they went out from you. They're associated with the Antichrist. You are God's children. God is with you. God walks. You have an anointing. You are the hands and feet of Christ. He also goes on to say that you know the truth. You know the truth. Meaning we understand the importance of who Christ is. How vital it is that you know Jesus and what he has done. Christ alone, right? The propitiation, which John has already talked about, the the Christ the righteous, our advocate, as he tells us. Now, John isn't saying that, it, that every Christian knows everything, right? Let's make that clear. I mean, I know that might confuse some of you with me making that statement. A good, it doesn't confuse all of you. <laughs> That's wonderful, right? <clears throat> he says, uh, in verse, uh, excuse me, 20. But you have anointing from the Holy One and you know all things, right? He's saying, look, you know this and he's not speaking to us arriving and and approaching all this understanding and, and having a good grasp on these things. But he's also, he's pushing the, we believe that not to be true. We don't know all things, right? But he's pressing the idea that you know the importance and the sufficiency of Christ, the absoluteness of Christ. Christ alone is, is precious and dear because what he has done, because he is God's means to save us. So we see this, this, this the power of God's truth. And, and John is saying there's no gray area here. Brothers and sisters, there are those who are against. They have the spirit of the Antichrist. And there are those who know Christ. There are those who have the hope of eternal life. And these are the ones who, John says, these are the dear children. He So truth divides. And he goes on from there in verses 22 through 23. I believe that truth becomes, what I'll say, revealing. When we see the truth for what it is and we begin to look through God's truth, especially at our world, everything becomes a little bit more clear. He says in verse 22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So quite, quite succinctly, we see that truth will expose lies. Now John is dealing definitely with the, the Gnostic error here, and he's, he's speaking very specifically. He's not coming in with a general sense of saying, hey, there's this general problem or there's this, this general error here. He's saying there's a very fundamental error. Gnostics have, right? Specifically on who Christ is, their denial of Christ. And this fundamental error has um, great consequences, right? It's not some grand thing, it's very specific. And he, John quite frankly says, if you misunderstand who Christ is, if you profess him in only some of his attributes and deny him in some of the others, he would say, you are in fact have the lie. You are in fact the liar. John unfolds it. it's not enough to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's saying, I believe in Jesus, who is in fact God, who is in fact the Son of God. We, have, we believe wholeheartedly in the deity. Now, it's more than just this idea of, of this confession, that here is Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's definitely a part of that. And I think John is, is going beyond those simple things, And because I think the Gnostics might have said, that's fine, that sounds good. We, I think we're saying the same thing, which would have added to the confusion. But John goes a little bit further and says, no, this is the Son of God, right? He's knowing that the Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son. And if you deny one, you don't get the other. You can't have it both ways, right? Well, I've got God. There's no sin. All these Gnostics are saying all these things. And he's saying, no, if you don't have Christ, you clearly don't have the Father. You don't have God altogether. If you don't have Christ, you in essence have nothing, and it's interesting how this has played out through history. I believe that the Gnostics kind of held to this idea that, that Christ himself was some type of emanation, some type of spirit that came upon the man Jesus, right? When Jesus walked this, this earth, the, the God came upon him, and then when he went to the cross, and right before he died, God left him. That's kind of what they were holding on to. So they had this idea of saying, yeah, no, we're saying all the same things. We believe Jesus is Lord. Yeah, when he, when he lived in this time frame, yeah, absolutely, he was Lord. And John is saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm getting at. Worse, I'm saying Jesus is God. He specifically is God, and we've seen this lie carried out through church history. There are many who have come on, come onto the scene uh, throughout the time, whether they borrowed from Plato and Plato's thought of the unmoved mover and the, and the emanation that came down from the unmoved mover, and somehow they, they pushed you know Jesus in here. And I think Jesus is here. I don't think he's equal with God, and they wrestled with this throughout church history. And many people came on the scene who denied denied that Christ is God, or denied that he was sinless. And John is saying, this is the lie. It's amazing how John is saying right here, you have known, you know, this is the truth. I've explained it to you. The spirit of the Antichrist has come. He is against Christ. And if you don't have him, if you don't accept him for all that he is and all his attributes, in essence, John is saying they have produced an idol. Looks like Jesus, right? Kind of talks like Jesus, not quite Jesus but we'll claim him as such. And John's saying, that's a lie. That is a forgery. You have no Christ at all. John Calvin says this, We now see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. And as Christ is the end of the law and the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also also is he the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. Therefore, the apostle has has good reason to make those who fight against Christ the leading liars, since the full truth is exhibited to us in Jesus. The mystery has been revealed in who? Christ. You think of Jesus' question, who do people say that I am, becomes very important how we answer that. Because Jonathan, if you don't answer it biblically from Scripture, he's saying, guess what? You're not in the dear children camp. You're in the other one doesn't matter your intentions. You stand against. John is saying there are, there are consequences. We don't confess Christ of Scripture according to the Scriptures. He's saying you don't have the Son. You're in fact denying Him and you're denying the Father. I can imagine these, these Gnostics were probably saying, well, it sounds very similar. We've kind of got the same idea here. And yet John kind of spreads or, or splits the hairs and says, no, it's either this way completely or you don't have them at all. The person we confess has to be the person of the Scriptures. Has to be God's only, Christ the righteous, the advocate, the propitiation, the means by which God has saved us. And we can say that how important is the Gospel? It's vitally important. It's how God still changes lives. It is Christ alone. And the wonderful... Uh, encouragement for us this morning who know him is that we all we don't just possess god we don't have that confidence of just uh, having him we know that he has us that's a wonderful truth right because truth is revealing and it gives us confidence i was coming across this uh statistic in in april 15 2015 the barner group took a poll and asked americans right who do you think jesus is They learned five things. This is what's happening two years ago. This is the five things they learned. The vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Okay, we're on the right track, maybe, right? Second, younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. All right, so John moves them all over to a different camp, right? Three, he says Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. That's the problem. Four, most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, which our question would be, which Jesus? And five, they say people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. Of course, that makes sense. If he's not sinless and he's not actually real and he's not actually God, well, then how can you know, right? At least they're logical in that. But what's interesting is the research how they they, they compiled this and their response to it. I'd like to read this to you, what the research means. David Kinman, president of the Barnard Group, directed the national study, and he says this. There isn't much uh, argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. These findings, however, demonstrate the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans. It is not surprising that Easter brings a range of Jesus-centered entertainment and media programming. Jesus has a built-in audience. This study also shows the extent of Christian commitment in the nation. More than 150 million Americans say they have professed faith in Christ. This impressive number begs the question of how well this commitment is expressed. Well, if he's not the propitiation, what John is saying, I can see why their commitment isn't very dear. He goes on to say, As much uh, of our previous research shows, Americans dedicated to Jesus is, in most cases, a mile wide and an inch deep. Many of the institutional, cultural, and familial tendons that connect young adults to life in Christ, are stretching. Much has been made about whether millennials will get more serious about church and faith as they age, but the fact is younger Americans are not as concerned as older generations are to Christ. He concludes by saying, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but many millennials are unfriending him at a time when their lives are being shaped by their trajectories set towards the future. And we realize that truth is revealing. And John is saying there's no gray area here, brothers and sisters. And our world is saying, you know what? I, I like these elements of Jesus. This sounds good to me. And these other parts, not so much. And, and it's amazing how John is, is very prophetic, right? He speaks directly to this. I, I say I like Jesus, but I have no desire to follow his commands. He would say the truth is not in them. And in this passage we looked at today, he would say they are actually against. If You say he has sin or you're confused whether he's sinless or if he was actually real or if he was in fact God, John would say, you're over here. And this should open our eyes because truth is revealing and he's saying this is who Christ is and our world is is professing some other idol. Our nation is saying this. Sounds good, Right? I look good. I go to to church on Easter and Christmas. The Creasters, right? We kind of make both those. And I think I'm good. And John is saying, don't be fooled. Truth is revealing where they actually stand. For us, it becomes an assurance. It becomes a confidence. It also should motivate us to evangelism. When Jesus says, go and make, right? I'll be with you. Go. It's time to speak that truth. Our world is lost, and they're trusting, right? In some type of Achilles heel at the end of this thing, I'll be okay. I went to Easter. I went to that one service once. And they need to know the truth. So we see that truth divides. There's no gray area in truth. Truth reveals where people are actually at. They profess of scriptures, or they're trying to make something up. And the last thing, verses 24 through 27, is truth, I, I believe, needs protection. It needs protection. It needs us to engage it. This might be a better word. He says in verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that we, that He has promised us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as He has taught you, you will abide in Him. John has identified the denial of Jesus by the false teachers as the work, really, of of the evil one. Right? of a demonic influence. He's saying this antichrist, they are, they are the opposition. And for us this morning, as we look at these things, we have to ask these questions, you know, what about us, right? We want to have this confidence. How do we safeguard this? How do we make sure we continue in our sanctification? And John's really specifically addresses two areas that I think we need to develop in. The first one is abiding in the Word of God. Let's abide in the Word of God. He says, which you have heard from the beginning. And clearly he's talking about the gospel, right? The apostolic teaching that you've heard, that you have believed. And he definitely has touched on the idea of the opposition and mentioning the Antichrist to this congregation. And for us this morning, it really refers to the breath of Scripture, right? We have the whole Bible with us. And so God, John is saying you need to abide in this and allow God's word to form you, to conform you, to change you, right? And at times when it's hard and difficult, it should rebuke us right, to the point of repentance because we realize it's God's kindness that leads us there. And we see the mercy and the grace of God's word and we go, man, this is it. And if there's areas in my life I need to change, just let God's word be his word and let me come and submit to it and let me be refined by it. Paul says these wonderful words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, very familiar to many of us, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and being assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. John says, here is your safeguard. Dig into God's word, abide in this. Right? And trust that as you become the hands and feet of Christ, this wonderful, omnipotent, all-powerful God is with you. Right When we speak these things, we realize that not all are going to come. Right, We plant and we water, but not all are going to come. And even in that, God will be glorified. But we trust that while we are here, we will make a difference. We'll speak God's truth, and we must abide in His Word. And the second thing here that John alludes to is this idea of anointing. We must trust the Holy Spirit. You, know, you have to stop and think that uh, I would imagine John has communicated all these things to this, these Gnostics and, and people within the congregation have talked to these Gnostics and shared these very things. Hey, this is, this is what you're doing. And right, you have to go, what does, what does this church have or what does John have that these Gnostics do not have? And clearly the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God is what opens and illuminates the truth of His Word. And John has this idea that this anointing of the Holy Spirit is with you. You are the ones, you are the the priesthood, right? A holy nation, as Peter would say, you are the ones to take this profession and to go forward. John says, look, you don't need a professional. Right? This idea that the Gnostics say, come to us. We've got the inside scoop on this whole thing. And he's saying, you don't need to go to them. He's not saying that, that the teaching ministry of, of, the, of the Word of God or of the church is not important. He's saying, look, you don't have to go find the, the professional churchmen. He says in verse 24, Therefore, let uh, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise. You have eternal life. These things I have written to, uh, I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you that the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. You don't need these Gnostics to come on the scene and say they've got you know, Christ 2.0. It's the better version. He's saying, no, within yourself, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You can discern truth from error. Because we look at this and say, well, isn't John in essence teaching right now, right here in his letter? Clearly, he's communicating and teaching them what they should and should not be doing, so we want to understand that properly. I think for us, we have to realize that we should not right, receive teaching from those who aren't a part of the family of God. And So for us this morning, as we, we come to this, this element of, of truth, and you know, we see how truth divides, and we see how it, how it is revealing, we look at our world through this element of truth, we see we have to protect it. We see we have to grow in it. We have to trust God's word. You know, where does that leave us in application? And my last few uh, little add-ons i like to add under application is we have to learn the truth It matters. Truth does matter. Specifically, who are we talking about to Scripture? It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord and all of us say yes, 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 and amen. But which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the Son, the second person of the Trinity? Are you talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has paid the price that only he could pay, the lion of the tribe of Judah? Must learn that truth matters. The second thing we must learn is we must take responsibility for the truth. A lot of times we, we like to think, maybe I don't know enough or I'll let somebody else step into this area. And we kind of fail to, to, to realize that God is sovereign. And God has placed you uniquely where He needs you to be. And He's done a work in your life, right? And we never get to this place where we feel we've got all the answers. The truth matters. And you have a responsibility. We all have a responsibility to it. It's wonderful to step back and say, let's, let's be this church that goes and makes disciples. That's, that's, all, that's what we want to do. But who is the church? It's you and I. We need to go and make disciples. So I encourage you in your conversations and those you interact with, truth matters. I mean, for John, he's, he's quite frankly said, look, you're either for Christ or you're against him. And we realize that. We live in this world, the world that, that loves the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes world that craves those things and our desire is to speak truth in those areas and i realize that comes from a relationship that comes from knowing someone that comes from them knowing that you believe the truth that there's something different about you it's, you know it's amazing just just you know having a church building is great because people know if there's something going on right i can i can go to this tr- i can come and how much more profound would it be that if, if people knew you specifically in the workplace? When I was in Denver, I had a man who, who showed up at the, at the door of the church, and it was a kind of a cold day, and, and he walked in, and, and um, I opened the door and invited him in, and, and he didn't know really where to go. He was kind of lost, not in the sense of, of where he was at, but his wife had just recently passed away. And he quite frankly says, I don't, I don't even know how to process all this. I remember here going, this is great. You know, you came here, let's sit, sit down. I talked to him for a while, prayed with him, I hugged him, I even cried with him. Man, it was broken. I said, even in this, there, there is hope, brother, right? There's, there's reason. There's healing, there's forgiveness. And how much more is that, would that happen if God's children, each and every one of us, right? The best, right? And our, our commitment to sanctification, live this truth out that there are those around you, they are, or are broken. Right? Many times we think they need somebody better than I. And most of the time they just need somebody right, who's genuine, who's real, who will love them. Truth matters. Utilize that truth. Take responsibility for it. Grow in it. Because right? there are those who are lost.